Do you know me? It's frightening how many novels of suspense I've written. But still, when I'm not recognized, it just kills me. So instead of saying I wrote Carrie, I carry the American Express card. Without it, isn't life a little scary? To apply for the card, look for an application and take one. The American Express card. Don't be home without it. So, Mr. King, what tale of horror and the macabre are you working on now? Oh, I don't feel like writing horror right now. Oh, that's too bad. I'm working on a biography of Benjamin Franklin. He's a fascinating man. He discovered electricity and used it to torture small animals and green mountain men. And that key he tied to the end of a kite, it opened the gates of hell! Well, let me know when you get back to horror. Will do. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. On today's show, we continue to celebrate Stephen King's 75th birthday, as well as the release of Bev Vincent's new book, Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. This is part two of our three-part interview with Bev Vincent, who is an expert on Stephen King, having published other books on the master of the macabre. Bev is an acclaimed fiction author in his own right. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, the heart of King's career, in fact, the 1980s and 90s, when he became not simply a best-selling writer, but also a household name. A note for our listeners, during parts of the interview, we experienced a few small audio drops due to connectivity issues. As I once said in a bygone era, please do not adjust your sets. You'll notice it occasionally. So let's return to our interview with Bev Vincent as we continue to discuss his book, Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. So we're into Chapter 3, The Midas Touch, the 80s. And we enter the golden age of Stephen King in the 1980s, uh, quoting a section of your opening paragraph of Chapter 3, Bev. Every novel he published from that point forward debuted on the major bestseller list during the book's first week of publication, often in the number one position. Let's look at pure numbers for a second. In the 1980s, Stephen King released 19 books. There were 15 theatrical film adaptations. So how did King become the king of zeitgeist, the Beatles of fiction, the Spielberg of horror? Please put this into perspective for us, Bev. I know this could be an entire college course, but please (laughs) sum up one of the biggest cultural phenomena of our lives. Well, (laughs) <laughs> there, there is there is the success of the novels you know when things become bestsellers you know, the dead zone closes out in 1979 being his first number one hardcover and so he's got a name he's got a track record you know from my personal experience i discovered in king in 79 i was hooked and i was just i had to read everything from that point on 
you know, backtrack to read everything he'd written, but from that point on, I was hooked. So he captured an audience of readers, but there's also the power of cinema. And say what you will about The Shining, um, even though it was pretty badly drubbed critically at the time it first came out, it in, in later years has been recognized as one of the great uh, American motion pictures. Carrie certainly terrorized a lot of people and nothing succeeds like success. And the 1980s, we call it the first golden age, especially of the adaptations of King. But admittedly, there was also a lot of crap, but there, there were enough successes that made people want to jump on this bandwagon and turn out things like children of the corn, one, two, three, four, five, and six. And, uh, you know, some, movies and of, of less good quality than some of the others but the books speak for themselves i mean you get through uh the fire starters and you know all, all of the great books you know culminating things like it um which was you know one of his magnum opi opuses um i mean he was firing on all cylinders he was also uh, fueled by alcohol and drugs, so that sort of explains why we might get 19 books out of him in a decade. But uh, a lot of what he wrote in that era was just, there, there are people still look back at those books and say you know, how terrific most of them were. Not all of them, but most of them. Are there any outliers among those 19 books released in the 1980s that you would like to draw the attention of constant readers to be to? Well, I guess, uh, let's see. But the Tommyknockers, I would say, is an outlier. Um, one of my least favorites of his books. Um, the reason being that I really liked the two characters that we are introduced to, mm-hmm. Bobby and Guard. Their story is really interesting. And then he just says, okay, chuck those guys aside. Here's 400 pages of people that you've never met before <laughs> you probably won't like very much. And I'm just sort of, I mean, I'm reading it, but I'm reading it pretty quickly because what's going on with Bobby and Guard? I want to get back to them. And to me, I think that lessened the enjoyment of that book. Yeah, that was the first one for me where I was like, what's going on here? But I, <laughs> but I did love, I'll always remember the first time I read the scene with the, uh, the Coke machine coming down the highway. That, that's, <laughs> that, that's for me is one of my favorite King images. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the, there's the, uh, the machine, you know, throwing Coke cans at people in, uh, uh, the movie that he directed, Maximum Overdrive, right. a product of the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly there were some very clever uh, images and concepts in that. But I got to like the characters, and uh, I just didn't care so much about a lot of them. Yeah, and uh, one that I find doesn't get enough love that that is a, sort of a favorite but is also an outlier is Cycle of the Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Um I just loved everything about it. I mean, first of all, I already liked Bernie Wrightson as an artist. So getting Bernie Wrightson and Stephen King together was great. And uh, I guess there's the note or actually you call our attention to that. Um, supposedly he says a cycle of the werewolf, which inspired silver bullet. The film is probably the only feature film based on a concept for a calendar. <laughs> okay. Yeah, in this, yeah. Yeah, somebody cornered, somebody cornered Steve at a conference and said, you know, we want to put out this calendar and Bernie Wrightson is going to do this. And could, could you, uh, you know, come up with a little segment for each month? And so naturally, you know, when you think of the months, you think of the phases of the moon. And so that made werewolves and, but it really just sort of handcuffed 
king to only have be able to write a very short thing and so it just grew and grew and grew and turned into a book which probably was what the person who produced this ultimately wanted anyway and was too afraid to ask for. (laughs) In this chapter, chapter three, you give us an interlude to the dark tower. Uh, There are fans of Stephen King who read everything but the dark tower and those who only read the dark tower. Uh, But as the series progressed, it became clear that there is no separating dark tower books from King's larger body of work. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? The the separation becomes more obvious when we get into the 90s, uh, the lack of separation, because a lot of what he wrote in the 90s was just heavily infused in, in Dark Tower mythos. But the, it's, it's an interesting series because it has a, a cycle to it, a rhythm of when the books appear. There's, he, he writes a book and then he doesn't do anything more for six or seven years. And then it, you know, he talks about the, the song of the turtle he he wants to get back to it and then another six or seven years goes by and so we start with the cycle in 82 um with the gunslinger and then we come back to it again with the the drawing of the three and and later in the uh, 80s and then things come back up again in the 90s but it's it's an interesting thing that the dark tower really is something that has occupied his mind through the entirety of his career. He started working on the first book when he was 21, or maybe even 19, probably. Um, and uh, it's I don't know, it, it's almost like it haunts him. And I don't know if, if you've read very far into fairy tale yet, but there's this concept of the way that uh, creativity works, perhaps, is the people who are creative are attuned to things that are going on in worlds that are adjacent to us. And what we consider to be stories are a reality somewhere else. And in my review of fairy tale, I speculated, so maybe Roland's world is real Mm. and King as a creative person is just attuned to it and channeling that through into his fictions, because it certainly seems to be something that is endemic to him. It's just, woven into his dna somehow yeah that could my, melt my mind as, <laughs> as, as did a lot of uh, the last couple of books of the dark tower okay on page 59 uh you talk about zone radio in the mid 1980s i was working at uh, my college radio station crsc seneca college as a dj and news and sports director uh so i sent king Uh, a letter asking for an interview about the connections between horror and music. Uh, Though I didn't get the interview, he did take the time to uh, send me this response. And by the way, I saw you have a very similar letter too, but uh, so, so King wrote, uh, thank you for your interest in an interview. I love to talk about rock and roll, but now is not a good time. I'm in the middle of editing a uh, 1400 page book And then I'm off on a promotional tour for a movie I directed. So that would be Maximum Overdrive. I'm scheduled for so many interviews now that by the time I'm done, I'll be a babbling mass of jelly, barely able to turn on the radio, let alone talk. I do own a private radio station, AM Rock, and that's, and that's 
makes it harder for me to say no, but my sanity prevails. Maybe I'll catch you at CRSC another time. Best Stephen King. So this thing, I, do, I, I can't believe I haven't framed it yet, but that needs to happen soon. Um, is it too late for me to follow up on this letter? Do you think, I, Beth? I don't think it is um, because music is definitely something that's been woven through his books um, to, to the extent where he even uh, takes a couple of characters from it and wrote uh, some lyrics that appear in Duma Key and uh, credits credits them to Richie Tozier and William Denborough, I think it is, uh, as the authors uh, of, of this uh, fictional piece of music. So, yeah, I mean, music is. Uh, I mean, he he plays has played over his career in a in a rock band called the Rock Bottom Remainders. So yeah, I don't think it's too late to follow up. Uh, can't guarantee you that you'll get the interview, but he's he's been pretty generous with interviews lately, especially during pandemic. He's done quite a few uh, Zoom interviews. Oh, I should have got that going a little earlier. Oh, that's right. He. It's funny. I'm not one who suffers from FOMO that often, but um, when I saw that the Losers Club uh-huh. had <laughs> had him on, that's one of the few times in my life where I was like, God, they've got. They got an interview with Stephen King. Okay. Well, he even did one with the Archbishop of Canterbury. How's that for a wow out there? <laughs> okay, I need to check that one out. Over to you, David. Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the uh, rock bottom remainders, Beth, because with with Stone Radio and in a lot of King's writing, music is an important part of the story. At one point, King has lyrics that begin every chapter of Christine. King has also played in the band, and and as you mentioned, the Rock Bottom Remainders were a band of famous writers who made their debut in 1992. The original lineup included King, Amy Tan, uh, Dave Barry, Ridley Pearson, Ray Blount Jr., and Barbara Kingsolver. Uh, they have played live to raise money for various charity, uh, charity, co- charitable causes. Um, in lieu of Stephen King, Bev, do you mind if we talk? with you about the rock bottom remainders sure sure i mean that they started out it was just going to be a one-off um they were going to be at the american bookseller association i think it was in anaheim and they found out that they uh enjoyed it so much that they actually put a tour together and, and there's there's a book out the uh, photographs taken by tabitha king with essays by all of them i got to see them once um they were at the miami book fair um, Warren Zevon uh, was in the band that time, so that was great because I've always been a Warren Zevon fan. King hasn't always played with him. He's come and gone over the years, and the lineup has changed. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a famous quote. They uh, they say that they play music as well as, uh, I don't know if it's Megadeth or some rock band writes novels. Um, <laughs> but but they have fun, and, you know, they, they, they do some campy things, and uh, it's all in good fun and all for good causes. Bev, this is just off the top of my head. Um, I think in the book, did you mention that Anthrax has 12 King-related songs? That's, is that right? I, if it's in the book, it's got to be true. Okay, okay. I, yeah, I, I need to check those out. <laughs> and and okay. I got to say, you know, you talked about King putting the quotes uh, from uh, lyrics at the beginning of Christine. He himself had to pay for that. The publisher doesn't cover the cost of that, and the right. rights for some of those lyrics were pretty, pretty pricey. Wow. And it depends on the number of copies sold. When So when you're talking about the number of copies King sells, it could be a pretty deep investment. Right. And yeah, there are so many in Christine. Okay. So uh, Pet Cemetery and It are perhaps two of the most iconic novels from this period in the 1980s. 
let's talk about uh, both of those a little bit. Um, there was a, f- a famous rumor floating around in the early 80s that Stephen King had a novel that was too frightening to release. And that book, of course, turned out to be Pet Cemetery. Can you give us a little bit of background on that book, Bev? He, uh, he wrote the book and gave it to his critical first readers, uh, his wife. I think Peter Straub was also a reader. Generally, they said this is... Well, we're not sure that you want to publish this. It's really sort of out there and it's disturbing. It's really personally disturbing. And so he put it in the drawer and he didn't intend to publish it. But he, Steve can be very forthright in interviews. And sometimes he says things that, you know, if he'd given a little bit of reflection, he might not have. Or maybe he was really just, you know, being big S, big K Stephen King. And, you know, there's a little bit more of the legend of Stephen King. I've got a book that's too scary to publish. Um, but, in the uh, 70s, he had this contract with Doubleday that allowed them to hold a lot of his earnings in escrow. And it was supposed to be a, a way of, you know, avoiding having to pay taxes on monumental amounts of income. But at the rate they were doling it out to him, it was going to take them like 40 or 50 years to, uh, you know, distribute all the money he had made with them. And so they came up with a deal where he would give them one more book and that would clear the accounts with them. And, but the only manuscript he had on hand at that time was Pet Cemetery, And so he, you know, of course he would talk it over with his wife and she agreed. And that's how Pet Cemetery came to terrify a whole generation of parents. <laughs> well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because... Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. And speaking about terrifying, I would guess that among his output of the 1980s, uh, it is a fan favorite. Let's chat a little bit about Bevy from the Levy, Richie from the Ditchy, Stuttering Bill, and Pennywise the Dancing Clown. I heard a quote from Joe Hill once, I think from an audiobook. He said, my father's books are not about fear. They are about conquering your fears. Uh, do you agree that this couldn't be clearer than in it? That's or, an interesting, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've heard that quote before, but it's an interesting way of looking at them. Um, certainly in it, the fears, the childhood fears manifest themselves physically for these seven losers. And even, you know, by the time they're adults, they've forgotten a lot of that stuff. But when the memories start to come back again, again, their childhood fears become something that they have to battle. Um, Pennywise, you know, the evil alien clown like creature is able to capitalize on the things that it knows that people are afraid of and it feeds on those fears. And so you could look at the battle with Pennywise as being ultimately a battle against the things that you fear. Um, Bev, in another interlude, uh, you bring us to Derry, Maine, the fictional town of it. Uh, Derry is also mentioned in 112263, Bag of Bones, Pet Cemetery, and many other King novels and stories. Derry is very much a fictionalized version of King's home in Bangor, Maine. Uh, Stephen King tours of Bangor um, uh, offer a three-hour tour of Stephen King's sites in the area. 
have you uh, taken the actual tour? Well, you know, I was traumatized by uh, this TV series when we were kids about a three-hour tour or a three-hour tour. And mm-hmm. I'm too, too afraid to embark on that in case I get stuck on a desert island for the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, I grew up in New Brunswick, which shares a border with Maine. And so when I was a kid, we went to Bangor a lot. That was We used to go camping there. It was a place where we could go shopping to get things that we could and get in rural New Brunswick. And so I'm very, very familiar with Bangor and I've never actually taken the tour, the official tour, but I have, um, I was up there uh, several years ago um, and I sort of drove around and saw the the heights, you know, the, the standpipe and the Paul Bunyan statue and um, the, 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 the uh, canal that runs through the city. But I, but I, was previously pretty familiar with it, so I've, I've never taken the tour. Troy, I think you had mentioned to me that you have plans to do the tour yourself, I think. That's right. It'll be in about a month's time. Really looking forward to it. It'll be my second time in Bangor. We actually went in, um, oh, I don't know, sometime in the 80s. We'd been out into Quebec City, sort of spontaneous road trip, and it was during the whole... Uh, uh, Quebec language issues and we just we didn't feel very at home <laughs> as English speakers um, yeah we're really looking forward to heading off uh, to Bangor for the uh, SK tour it's going to be part of our anniversary so I'm very excited that my wife was sort of willing to share our anniversary with my whole constant reader um, mania um, but yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that as long as I don't sort of make her like cast her in certain roles, you know, okay, can you hear pose here as so-and-so and anyway, yeah. Can you be Margaret White now over here? Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So King wraps up the 1980s with the novels, Misery, the Tommy Knockers and the Dark Half. These are books of varying length and quality. As it turns out, he has been dealing with alcohol and substance abuse issues, including cocaine use, through the decade. His wife, Tabitha, again, uh, being the wonderful person she is, holds an intervention, and slowly he finds his way back towards sobriety. Uh, we're continuing our look at your book, Stephen King, a complete exploration of his work, life, and influences here in Chapter 4. Um, which is subtitled Experimentation and Change, the 1990s. Um, in Chapter 4, uh, you note how something interesting happens. Uh, Rob Reiner releases Misery, his second King film adaptation, with Kathy Bates playing Annie Wilkes. And at the 1991 Academy Awards, Bates wins the award for Best Actress for her portrayal of Wilkes. And slowly, people begin to discuss Stephen King in a less dismissive manner. Around the same time, King releases three novels featuring strong female central characters. Those books are Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, and Rose Matter, while in Insomnia, a woman's right to abortion is a central element. There must be a question coming here. I'm sorry I'm (laughs) going on, Bev. Um, I do remember uh, being impressed by Gerald's game at the time it came out, finding it to be Joycean in its use of multiple internal dialogues, as well as having ostensibly a single setting. Um, do you think King had a renewed sense of purpose after going clean, uh, Bev? Or and, and what else sort of led to this development that he has as a writer? Well, if you read about the extent to which his addictions were, uh, controlling his life, I would say, in the 80s, then 
going through the process of rehabilitation, getting clean, uh, writing when you weren't high or drunk, it has to lead to a new perspective. And I think possibly, he, you know, he probably went through a period where he might have been afraid that he might not be able to write again without the energy given to him by chemical substances. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look at the nineties definitely as a period where, you know, he, he, he always said with it that, you know, that's, I'm going to close the book on the, the big horror stuff, uh, uh, with, uh, needful things. I'm going to close the chapter on castle rock and it's time to strike out in new directions. Um, the, the readership, I think, wasn't always fully on board with what he was doing. Um, I'm not sure that Dolores Claiborne and Gerald's Game were among his better received books, but they're certainly, they're very skillful books. And, you know, I think all this time later, people probably look back at them and give them a, a better consideration than maybe they received at the time. I think in part because just people expect a certain thing when you don't get that, then there's a, a bit of a, a, a blowback to it. Um, he was haunted by the, the Dark Tower. Um, Rose Matter is a, a Dark Tower adjacent book. Um, there are talks of Ka. There's a visit to a city of lead through the painting. We move on into Insomnia, which is, you know, in the Dark Tower series, Roland is told that Insomnia is the pivotal non-Dark Tower book because it uh, reveals a character who will become crucial to the ending of the Dark Tower series. And we get to meet the Crimson King for the first time. And th there's lots of books like that in Black House, which he did with Peter Straub, where he was experimenting with things outside of the series. It's almost like a sandbox. We play with ideas before they fully get incorporated into the Dark Tower books proper. And th there was a lot of that going on in the 1990s, too. In 1996, we get a few unconventional publications. The Green Mile was originally written and released in serial form, with six mini paperbacks re uh, being released, one each month for half a year, in the style of Charles Dickens in his prime. Later in 96, King released two new hardcover novels, Desperation was under his own name, while the second book, The Regulators, was released as a Richard Bachman book. Totally different books, but using the same characters, but in different universes. As well, each book was put out by different publishers, but when the novels were placed side by side, a crazy mosaic appeared. As a decade wraps up, King finishes with three extremely strong, heartwarming and heartbreaking books, Bag of Bones, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, and Hearts in Atlantis. As this was an experimental era for Cy King, let's open this part up and freeform on these projects. We'll let you lead off, Beth. Okay, so um, The Green Mile was uh, an interesting experiment. Um, King had the idea for the book, but he didn't think that he would ever be able to write it didn't have time to write it. Uh, he had so many other things going on. But when he was approached and asked to do to consider doing uh, a serial novel, he thought, well, this is a way I can just start carve out some time and get it done. And the, the really intriguing thing about it is uh, not only did uh, he publish six books in a row, one a month for six months, the first one came out before he had written the end of the, of the last one. 
So he often describes this as, you know, a tightware project because, you know, you can't, the book can't fail now. You've got to come up with a satisfactory ending. And the, the last one came out a month before the Desperation and Regulators were published on the same day, uh, a month later. And because of the way the New York Times worked at the time, he had eight books simultaneously for at least one week on the bestseller list. Um, later they decided to restructure and that they would only consider a, a serial novel as, you know, as a single entry instead of having all six of them show up. But yeah, I think he set a world record for the number of uh, bestsellers uh, <laughs> on, a, on a given month. And then there's this transition because at the end of the, the 90s, um, he leaves his publisher Viking and moves to Scribner. And it was a, a really controversial thing because there was a lot of publicity about the fact that he was looking for a new publisher and it, it made a lot of news, especially in the publishing world, about the way it was done. And because there, there was a thought that his advances had grown so huge that publishers really couldn't make any money, no matter how many books they sell, that, that it was just a, it was a losing proposition. So he came up with this interesting profit sharing deal with Scribner where he would share the profits and the risk um, and keep his uh, advances down to a more manageable uh, scope. But at the same time, moving to Scribner, which was always considered a more literary publishing house, was the beginning of a period when he really, really started to get uh, critical um, consideration for what he was doing. And, and Bag of Bones, I think, was the, the entry point into that when people say, okay, here's a book that's influenced by Thomas Hardy and um, uh, Herman Melville and all of these other, you know, cultural literary icons. And uh, it, it was a very popular book, both critically and among his regular readership. In something eerily familiar from his books, he was hit by a truck as he walked along an empty road. NBC's Katie Couric profiles an author who survived misery. For two decades, Stephen King has frightened millions of readers and moviegoers. Take my advice. Turn away. But now he's finding himself in the center of a real-life horror story, one that could have been lifted straight from his novels. This is where the accident happened on this stretch of Route 5 just south of Stephen King's lakeside home in North Lovell. A witness who saw the whole thing happen helped Oxford County Sheriff's deputies piece together the accident. Uh, he was bleeding and his, he was in laying in a heap and is all tangled up and I could tell his leg was broken. You know. Chip Baker says he was driving north and saw King walking south in the dirt on the other side of the road. That's when he says a minivan, also traveling south, suddenly swerved, went off the road, and hit the horror writer. He stopped when, as soon as he realized what had happened. He stopped, and I, I stayed with Mr. King and told him to go get some help and then come back. Deputy Matt Baker was the first to arrive. He had been distracted by his dog in the back of his van, um, looked over his shoulder or whatever to tend to the dog. When he did, he drifted off the road and struck Mr. King, never saw him. Everything changes on June 19th, 1999. While out for a walk, King is run over by a distracted driver in a van. His injuries included a collapsed lung, a broken leg, hip fractures, a chipped spine, 
four broken ribs, and a lacerated scalp. It was initially unclear if King would survive. Uh, Bev, do you remember when you first heard the news of the accident? I do. Um, my wife was sch- and I were scheduled to leave the next morning to go on a five-day um, live-aboard scuba trip uh, out of uh, Key West. And I got this message the evening. Somebody sent me an email or something to tell me that this accident had happened. And that I was completely off the grid for the next five days, which was a little bit of torment. Um, I think I was able to send Tabitha a, a quick message to say, you know, we were thinking of you and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, we had a good time on our trip, but this was sort of at the back of my mind, wondering uh, what the outcome of it was going to be. You've included a photo of King standing in front of the Dodge Caravan that struck him in the book. Uh, is it true that King had it demolished all of the end of the Christine film? Some sources say yes, some sources say no. So I'm going to remain on the, the, the latter on that one. The fact that there's a picture of him standing next to it lends some credence to it, but I'm not 100% sure. I think the main concern was is that they didn't want it to become... Yeah. Um, a celebrity icon that gets sold on the internet to somebody to say, hey, I've got the one that uh, ran King down. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard all the evidence. I submit that this was not a hot-blooded crime of passion. Consider this. A revolver holds six bullets, not eight. That means that he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back, one for each of your victims. So be it. Send you here for life? That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, God! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, new friend, you're putting me behind! Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not! Better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. That's damn right. The 90s also saw the release of two of the most beloved King adaptations, both of them directed by Frank Darabont, The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. Bab, why do you think it is that some directors like Darabont, Rob Reiner, and Mike Flanagan get it. They get King, while others 
clearly do not. I think sometimes it depends on what the um, motivation is for creating an adaptation. Um, some people approach it from wanting to adapt King, whereas some people approach it from the perspective of wanting to create something that has King's name on it, but they have their own pitch, their own spin on what they're trying to get across. And sometimes there's a like an intermediate ground. I look at an adaptation like Dolores Claiborne, which is one which doesn't get a lot of um, discussion these days. But to me, I consider to be one of the more powerful adaptations. And the thing that struck me about it is, is that it's somebody who completely tore the novel to pieces, reassembled it in a whole new form, jettisoned a bunch of characters, changes the way the story is told, and yet at the same time captures the novel completely. And I've often talked about Dolores Claiborne as being a really good adaptation adaptation that uh, isn't, you know, word literal to the novel, but is um, faithful to the concept of it. And Darabont had an uh, early relationship with King in that he was, if not the first, one of the very first ones who was given the dollar baby um, rights to do a short film for non-commercial purposes. And he did the woman in the room and, you know, he, he approached uh, King later on to, to ask for the rights to do uh, Reed Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption from different seasons. And King didn't think that anybody would ever finance this movie. He, so he, but he did give him the rights. Um, according to legend, King never ever cashed the check that he got uh, from Darabont for the, for the rights uh, for it. But, you know, people think of Shawshank as being a very faithful uh, adaptation. But if you go back and compare things side by side, there are a lot of differences. Um, in King's novella, there are a whole series of wardens, for example, whereas, you know, for the economy of film, Darabont collapses it down to just a single one who's there throughout the entire history of uh, the, the, the story. But, yeah, why, why do some directors do better than others. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, sometimes slavish uh, loyalty to King is a benefit, and sometimes it's not. Um, there are things like uh, the original Firestarter uh, film, which is, you know, it's, it's pretty faithful to the novel. But King himself would say that it, there's just something missing. Uh, you know, the special effects are there. And, and, you know, I think occasionally that's what people are about. Say, okay, we can burn things, you know, we can have this big, <laughs> uh, big screen event. Um, but you have to get the characters. You have to really like the characters. And maybe that's what gets missed sometimes. It's, I don't know. I'm not a very good film critic uh, from that level to, to be able to say that. And that wraps up Chapter 4, as well as Part 2 of our look at Bev Vincent's new book on Stephen King. And as we're a Canadian podcast, we decided we'd divide this baby into thirds, just like a good old hockey game, eh? We could have split it into two with a halftime extravaganza and cheerleaders and Beyonce, but we went with thirds. Do you know why? Why? Because three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number.
David, two of the areas that we didn't have time to get into that I wanted to touch on briefly here was King's philanthropy. We did talk about how King's playing with the rock bottom remainders was not just a lark, but was done as a series of charitable fundraisers. He and Tabby have given much to Bangor and the surrounding area to help support health care centers, libraries, and parks and recs facilities. He also donated the sales of his novel Blaze to a fund for artists of all kinds who are unable to work and have no health insurance. And those are just some of the initiatives that we know about. That just underscores how important it is to support arts and those who have had a rough time of it. We're all one community. And the more we all support each other, the better we all will be. I think Springsteen said in the intro to Born to Run, Nobody wins unless everybody wins. We also touched on his incredible productivity in the 1980s. And one of the things that we didn't really get into was how that output may have been affected by the poverty that King knew when he was young, leading right up until the time Carrie was published. I think once you've known that kind of hardship and you earn success, you want to make sure you never end up in hard times again. That's right. I think King stayed connected to that young, struggling artist inside him. That same struggling artist inside every artist. Which reminds me of a quote that King has used a number of times. And many people associate King with this quote. King said, People think I must be a very strange person. This is not correct. I have the heart of a small boy. It is in a glass jar on my desk. <laughs> now, I uh, did a bit of look into it. Because this is our 1980s and 90s episode. I was just trying to find out when it was first, when King first quoted it. So I, I went on the internet, found quoteinvestigator.com. Look at you doing doing the uh, detective research work here. Nicely yeah. done. Okay. What'd you find? What'd you find? Well, what I found was, and this is quoted directly from that site, Stephen King has employed this line on multiple occasions. However, when he delivered it during a speech at a library in 1983, he credited Robert Block. And uh-huh. this, uh, this was actually posted uh, on uh, quoteinvestigator.com on September 26th, 2021. This, this whole image is just totally overblown. I have the heart of a small boy. I keep it in a jar on my desk. <laughs> I bet you get a lot of mileage out of that one. I have never used that line before in my entire life. <laughs> so there you go. I guess uh, the good ones borrow and the great ones steal, as they say. Uh, they do say that. They say it. Yeah. I've heard it. <laughs> yes, I've heard it too. <laughs> Please make sure that, uh, listeners, you join us again for the conclusion of our interview with Bev Vincent as we continue to celebrate the 75th birthday of Stephen King and the release of Bev's stunning book, Stephen King, A Complete Exploration of His Work, Life, and Influences. Yep, Troy, that is the end of part two of our episode on Stephen King looking at the 1980s and 1990s. Thanks to our special guest, Bev Vincent. Thanks, Bev. All right. Remember to catch us on your favorite podcast provider. Uh, we are now on Spotify, but you can always go back to where it all started, the website. That's 2of.ca. That's numeric two. Twitter at to numeric to old farts sci-fi and facebook to not not numeric 
language skills, people. Facebook is two old farts talk sci-fi. Please do all the things that uh, one is uh, supposed to do with the internet and whatnot. Please like and subscribe. Please join us in chat on Facebook if you like. Please tell a friend. And of course, stop, drop, and roll. And don't forget Spotify. Oh, I already said it. Well, I, it's, I, it's I, worth I will, saying again. Oh, well, there you go. Spotify, people. Spotify. I am David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next thrilling adventure of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. They'd pay for it up the college.